Listener Production. Welcome back to State Crime Command. This is episode two of the investigation into the 1983 murder of Sydney nurse Mary Wallace. As the weeks passed, media interest in the case remained high, prompting a flood of information from the public to police. Most of the sightings, theories and speculation could be dismissed quickly. Some of the reports were of interest, and others remain mysterious to this day. On November 10, six weeks after Mary vanished, the head of the Homicide Squad, Detective Inspector Jack Whelan, received an anonymous letter, postmarked from Katoomba in the Blue Mountains. The author suggested that Mary Wallace was buried under a rock in St Ives Chase Park, a large swathe of bushland half an hour's drive north from where Mary was last seen in North Sydney. A map torn from a street directory was also supplied. A stretch along Cowan Creek was marked with crosses. There was writing in a neat cursive hand which said, Area, let's say one kilometre long by 300 feet wide. They helpfully suggested police approach from Timbara Road on the south end of the location. There was no way to verify whether the information was authentic. If this person did know the burial site, they had decided that police were going to have to work for it. The search area was 60,000 square metres. A police team has been digging in bushland near St Ives following a tip that missing nurse Mary Louise Wallace was buried nearby. Police have received a mystery letter pinpointing a gravesite of the 33-year-old. The story leaked to the press a week later and hopes were high that Mary would be found. However, in four and a half hours of searching the site at Cowan Creek, the police found no grave. Jim Council switched his attention to the Lane Cove National Park. Adams was a carpenter and he'd been working at a place called Jenkins Hill within the park. Well, on the Monday after Mary went missing, they poured concrete piers to hold up an observation deck. And when we searched Adams's room, we found the receipts for the concrete that poured the footings and we got the scientific down there with rods to try and get underneath the footings to see if there was any indication that there might be something like a body there but we didn't eventuate. We did locate what appeared to be a grave. I got the scientific and everything there. It turned out to be a dead dog. She's high hopes dashed. Yeah. We made a few inquiries around the vicinity because it wasn't far from where there were some houses and it turned out to be one of the guys had a dog and it died and he buried it in the park. So you found the owner of the dog even? Yeah. Throughout this period, Adams was a free man and feeling cocky. In October, he'd intimidated the female manager of the kiosk at Lane Cove National Park where he was working. An actor reads from her statement. He then said, you know the nurse that went missing from Crow's Nest? I'm on suspicion for murdering her. I don't look like I've got a murderous face, do I? You better watch out. I might hit you over the head and rape you. I replied, try it and you'll find a knife in your guts. In another incident, the manager claimed that Adams had grabbed her and rubbed her side up and down before she wriggled away from him. Shaken and scared, she was forced to quit her job because of the harassment. 
Adams displayed an almost compulsive need for sex. Even the same day, he killed Mary. I think it was the early Saturday morning that she went missing. And I think the following evening, he got tied up with a woman that lived across the road from where he lived. And they end up going to the hotel and coming back to Adams' place. And he had sex with her that night. Remarkably enough, Adams had struck up a new relationship two weeks after murdering Mary. Linda was a receptionist at the Royal North Shore Hospital and she'd met Adams in early October 1983 at the Camerain Northbridge Rugby Club where he played. She was aware that Adams was a murder suspect. His name and face were all over the media at the time. The relationship still flourished. Linda believed completely in Adams' innocence, despite his sordid history. In late February 1984, five months after the disappearance, another curious letter arrived at the Homicide Squad headquarters in Sydney. This time, it was addressed to Jim Council. There was a single page of childlike scrawl. Nicole Jones. It was a strange letter. It was delivered to the Homicide Squad and it was almost like a rhyme, like a poem. From Alpine came RA, with MW in tow, into MMA to see what's the go. RA is Robert Adams, MW, Mary Wallace. The registration of Adams' Commodore sedan began with MMA. Not to Dremoyne, but Willoughby we go. Mary lived at Dremoyne. Adams drove her to Willoughby instead. Sex with MW, then death and bury low. Never find MW, gone from boot gone to darkness. Jim Council took note. There was information that only police and the killer knew. Adam's registration, how he put Mary in the boot of his car. Yet, unlike the first letter, this person wasn't offering any assistance. Their intention was to mock the police. Fuck you, cobbers. Big joke, eh? And then, there was a strange shift in the final line. Help me, please. The letter was easy to dismiss as a hoax. But on one level, the laboured and crude handwriting warranted some consideration. Police knew that Adams could barely read or write. Strange letter. Very strange. Very, very... Obviously from a lunatic, I would think. (laughs) The fact that the body was in the boot. Did it cross your mind that it might have been Adams? Well, it did, yes, at one stage. Although when we examined the letter and fingerprints and everything, there was nothing to link it up to Adams scientifically. It was suggested that someone had written with their non-natural hand an attempt to foil analysis. And what of the bizarre plea for help? This was written in neat cursive script, the author switching back to his natural hand for the emotional plea, possibly. This part resonated with investigators. Adams had once shown he was capable of remorse in 1976. He did, and that was one of the first sexual assaults that we were aware that he committed. And it went through very similar circumstances again. Picked up a woman in a bar in in the North Sydney area, got her into his vehicle. This was a little bit different in that he took her back to his place and locked her inside. Now, once he did this, he raped her very brutally strangled her to the point where she thought she was going to die and she was going to be unconscious. She later escaped and ran out and got some help. But he did something very strange in this one and and he did apologise. He did say, you know, um, 
I don't know why I've done such a thing. Take me to the police. And he was charged with this one. The police were able to identify him based on the, the version given by the victim. And he did, in fact, say, there must be something wrong with me. Um, and he actually requested to undergo psychiatric testing to see if there's anything wrong with his brain. And it was found that apart from being of dull average intelligence, um, there was nothing wrong with his brain in that way. There's still debate over who wrote the two letters to police. The November letter with the map for Mary's grave was analysed in 1983 and 2010. Nicole Jones. We were able to obtain a sample of Robert Adams's handwriting to compare it to see whether that was actually him and he was almost confessing and identifying an area where Mary Wallace's body was. Unfortunately, that didn't really take us anywhere. And we believe to this day that that was just a red herring that somebody had written into Detective Council, had just provided a red herring for the investigation, which is very strange, but look, people do that. The second letter, written in February 1984, remains a mystery. The handwriting doesn't match the November letter and its tone is completely different. Never find MW. Gone from boot. Gone to darkness. If this one was written by Adams, then he clearly believed he was going to get away with murder. Perhaps he was boasting how well he'd hidden Mary. She was gone from the boot of his car. He'd hosed the boot out to make sure Police knew that. Adams knew that police couldn't convict him of murder without a body or any trace of one. Jim Council. Well, I spent about three months, I think, on the inquiry and uh, at that stage we'd exhausted all avenues of information that we had and uh, bearing in mind we only had 40 people working on the squad at the time. I was required back at the office for other investigations. You can only spend so much time at the one place. Adams was free to start a new life with Linda, whom he would soon marry. She would bear him four sons and would be witness to a miraculous change in Robert Adams. It's almost like he stopped offending. He had offended as a violent sexual offender multiple times up until 1983 when he killed Mary. And then after that, something happened. And it was because he'd moved on, he found a wife, um, he married her, and he had a bunch of kids. In these years, Mary's loved ones were torn apart by grief. Her parents went to their graves without an answer. At the same time, Adams enjoyed the best years of his life. He made a stable home and raised his children. He had never known happiness like this before. It was listed that he had a difficult childhood, um, not that you want to make excuses for his behaviour, certainly, but it was the fact that he had a difficult childhood and a difficult relationship with his parents. I believe his father was a harsh disciplinarian. I believe his mother might have had some mental health issues and he became a ward of the state very early on. So that was when he started committing petty crimes. Adams migrated to Australia from New Zealand in December 1970 and worked on the railways and as a carpenter and furniture maker. He married 21-year-old Judith Herod in 1971. A baby followed in 1972, which they adopted out before the marriage turned violent. Adams was drinking heavily and twice tried to strangle his wife. Terrified for her life, Herod left him for good in 1974, at which time Adams became a serial rapist. What was interesting, though, was further on down the track after he was incarcerated for 
the sexual assault. He was actually reassessed by the psych then and he was told that he was actually a psychopath. In speaking with the victims of sexual assault in the 80s, these women found him quite attractive. He was a big man. He was strong, muscular. They thought him was quite good looking. He dressed well. And I guess that's all part of how he enticed women. He was a football player, so he sort of came across as a good looking young man and women were attracted to him. Adam's deep misogyny was evident when he was interviewed by police describing how he and his mates would compete to see how many women they could have sex with. 40 years ago, you did it. Uh, as I said, there's three of us and we all did the same thing. The other two said it was a contest between us who could get laid the most and we sort of bragged about it. If Bob Adams didn't get what he wanted, his charm would quickly disappear. It seemed as though it was almost like a flick of the switch. He wanted sex from them and if he didn't get it, the switch would flick and he would be very, very violent towards them. He would say things like, I'm going to rape you either way. You can be dead or alive. So these women were absolutely terrified. He was a very large man, very strong man, and he made it very clear that he was going to have his way with them regardless. Adam's record of rape and sexual violence was an important avenue in Nicole Jones's investigation. Without a body, Jones needed as much circumstantial evidence as possible, including proof of Adam's propensity to commit such offences in the past. A crucial piece came from another murder investigation. Back in my initial investigation, I was also working on a number of other homicide investigations, as you could imagine. It wasn't just that I was solely working on one matter. And I was working on a case that involved the disappearance of a young girl called Trudy Adams. And she was a, a young girl that had disappeared from the northern beaches in 1978. 18-year-old Trudy Adams was last seen getting into a car on Baron Joey Road, Newport, in June 1978, after leaving a dance at a surf club. She has not been seen since. Nicole Jones. I was reading through the old running sheets of this particular investigation, and I read that somebody had called up and they gave their name, and this person said, I don't know if this helps, but I met a, a man who called himself Bob at a wine bar in, in North Sydney. She gave a description. She gave a description of his vehicle, but she didn't give a registration plate. So she said, he picked me up, I went into his car, he drove away, he locked me inside his place and he raped her. Um, so I looked at this information and I thought, this is in 1978, Mary Wallace doesn't go missing until 1983, but this is the same person. This is Bob Adams, she's referring to Bob Adams. And I knew there and then that we actually had another victim of his. I went through great lengths to try and find this woman. She had moved on, um, changed her name. And one day, and I remember this very clearly, I had one contact number remaining. And it was after hours, everybody had gone home. And I, I phoned this number and I, I got this lady on the other end and I said, I'm Nicole Jones, I'm investigating this matter. I don't know if I'm speaking with the right person here, but but I'm looking for somebody who reported a matter to police in 1978. And there was a bit of silence there. And I said, was that you? And she said, yes. And without putting words into her mouth, I said, what was it that you actually reported? And she said that I'd been raped. And I said, okay, look, I'm really interested in speaking with you about this. 
and I explained the reasons why and why it was important. And initially she wasn't interested and I could completely understand that. She actually reported it to police in 78, hoping that she would assist in the investigation of this um, missing person, Trudy Adams. And that was the end of it. She had moved on, she had a family and nobody knew about this. Initially, she said to me on the phone, look, I don't want to help you out and it's not for any other reason that I just don't want to dig this up in my life again. And I completely understand that. But I pursued it and I pursued it (laughs) very strongly. And there's a part of me that felt guilt around that. But at the same time, I knew that it was just so important that you've got an offender, a violent sexual offender, who has continued to offend and who is still out in the community And she said, look, all I remember is that he had tattoos all over his back, which Robert Adams does. And she said, you know what, I don't really have a great recollection of it, only that when I close my eyes... From the depth of her memory, this witness recited a vehicle registration plate. And this was a moment where I almost fell off my chair because she just provided Robert Adams' vehicle registration that he drove at the time. And she never told anybody that. She hadn't put it in a statement. She just had such a terrifying experience that she said he gave her a lift after he raped her. And she pretended that, she said, let me out here, this is where I live. Obviously it wasn't. She was so terrified that she was not going to survive this. She said to me, when I turned around and I looked at his vehicle, I just looked and thought, if I don't make it out or he comes back and gets me, I'm going to remember this registration plate. And she did. Of course, that was a really important moment in the investigation. The Trudy Adams investigation remains open to this day. This witness would be pivotal in eventually closing the Mary Wallace investigation. There were still a number of hurdles to clear, not least of which was locating Mary's body. In December 2010, the public would get its first glimpse of the man suspected of killing Mary. An inquest has begun into the suspected murder of a Sydney nurse who was last seen getting into a car 27 years ago. It's understood that the main suspect, Robert John Adams, now 58, will be representing himself. It's not known whether he will give evidence. I was surprised that he didn't seek legal representation, but he decided to represent himself and he was entitled to do that. Uh, That just meant that he was able to cross-examine witnesses and able to cross-examine me, which he did. There was intense interest in Linda Adams' testimony. If anyone had insight into Robert Adams, it was his second wife. His first wife, Judith, told the court that she was terrified of him, but it seemed like Linda had married a different man. She told the court they never discussed the facts of the rape he was jailed for in 1976, remarking that she would not have been with Adams if she'd thought he was guilty of killing Mary. Her own father had been in the police force for 25 years, but she'd never discussed the case with him either. Linda believed Mary Wallace had been just a one-night stand for the gentle man she called Bob the Yob, and nothing more. When Adams was questioning his wife, he asked her if he had ever hit her or the kids. No, she answered. Bob Adams was still forced to confront his past of sexual violence facing the women who testified to what he did when they said no to sex. At one point, Adams even apologised to the woman he'd raped in 1976. He said this was the first chance he had to apologise. It was a calculated show of remorse. After being jailed for that, Adams told his parole officer that the victim had deserved it. She was a slut, he said. When she accepted his invitation to get in his car, 
sex with her was a foregone conclusion, according to him. He took this same sense of entitlement into the rape and murder of Mary Wallace. To observers of the inquest, Adams was the only possible suspect. However, the case was frustratingly circumstantial. Nicole Jones had to admit that when questioned by the killer himself. There was no form of forensic evidence in the police report tendered to the court that linked Mr Adams to Ms Wallace's disappearance. All DNA tests conducted on blood samples found in Mr Adams' car had returned inconclusive results. Asked by Mr Adams, was there any forensic evidence linked to the case at all? The officer replied no. Jones also conceded a handwriting expert could not determine who'd written an anonymous cryptic poem linking Mr Adams to Mary's death. The Deputy Coroner Paul McMahon suspended the inquest soon after Jones's evidence and referred Adams to the Director of Public Prosecutions. If people expected a murder charge would soon follow, they would be disappointed. It would take three more years of work to get there. We just fell short, to be honest. We had a a lot of information and a lot of circumstantial evidence, but we certainly fell short at that point in time to go and arrest him and charge him with the murder of Mary Wallace. I guess in some senses, in terms of a story, it'd be like a bit of a low point. Yeah, it was... Look, it was just at that stage I was still hopeful and pursuing this investigation 100% with the rest of my team. In fact police already had the crucial piece of evidence that would be the undoing of Robert Adams. To be honest, cases like this from such a long time ago, things go missing. And in fact, the cases were found locked and secured in an old police cell all these years later. In episode three of Mary Wallace, time and science catch up with Robert John Adams. We got straight on the phone to our DPP solicitor. They were so happy with the result, they said, press the charge button. And she called me up and said, we've got him, let's go and lock him up. State Crime Command is produced in collaboration with the New South Wales Police Force and Real Crime Australia. Written and produced by Adam Shand. Executive producer, Grant Tothill. Original music and mixing by Matt Nikolich. The associate producer is Sarah Grinberg. Research by Nolly Way Shand. Digital producer, Jack Shand. Listener.